Hello everyone, it's Britt the Petite Polymath, and tonight I have something special. I'm not going to say anything else because you'll see soon enough. Okay, so tonight I have a guest. Tyler is going to be joining me, and we are going to be discussing Eric Larson's The Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Churchill, family, and defiance during the Blitz. I'll let Tyler say hello. Hello, Britt. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be your first guest, and I'm so glad that we read this book together. So, to give you all a little bit of backstory, um, because, you know, you should know what you're in for, um, pretty much how I happened upon this book was because of Tyler. He had mentioned it to me in passing. We were talking about things we were reading, and then I promptly forgot, and then bought it, and was like, someone I know read this book. And of course it was Tyler. So when we were talking about the book later, he's like, we should do a podcast, a joint podcast together. And here we are. Um, so what this book is about, it is about the first year of Winston Churchill as prime minister during World War II. And Eric Larson might be familiar to some of you because he is also the author of uh, The Devil in the White City, which was a New York Times bestseller. So I think the best way maybe to start is for Tyler to talk about how he happened upon this book and then maybe some thoughts that come up for him on reflection of, of reading it. I was gifted this book by a team member of mine, Declan Kunkel, and he gave it to me for my birthday. And I am a big Churchill fan going into it, so I was excited to, to read it. My, my, initial, my initial feeling was that it was a little too heavy on the military detail, but that was washed away by the rich characters, and I really enjoyed the, the read. So I would agree with Tyler. Um, when I started, of course, they kind of give you more of um, a breakdown of Churchill and his family and kind of the, the personal aspects, and then they get into the pretty nitty-gritty about, you know, ideas for how they mobilize the military, etc., and I was getting a little like, oh, I don't know, this might be a little arduous. But then if you persist, you get even more um, introductions to new characters and how they impact the war and also the personal life of Churchill, um, as well as um, insights into the other side, the Germans. Uh, so I, I think maybe a good place to, um, to go next are kind of themes from the book. And I think one thing that stood out to me uh, was the idea of normalcy in the midst of chaos. You know, so we have a war going on, and yet the British continue to go about doing their day-to-day -day activities. They go to work. They go to school. They get married. They get divorced. Like, things continue, even in the midst of a blitz, when the bombings happen. It's, it's pretty uh, incredible. Uh, what do you think about that, Tyler? That was the first theme that grabbed me. I was blown away with the resolve of the British citizens, and I didn't realize just how challenging it would be for them to keep calm and carry on, but they did it day in and day out. And there is a point where there's 57 straight nights of bombings. And in the morning, they get up, they get their family together, and they go on and do their normal day. They go to work, they go to school, and there's wonderful accounts of this normalcy that they just pushed forward. That's very true. Uh, I think another, another interesting aspect about the normalcy is that the young people are still young and impetuous. 
So, you know, we have one of Churchill's children, Mary, who is coming of age during the war. And there's an account of them going out to a jazz bar, you know, to dance and, and hang out. And they're on their way to the next bar, and it's been bombed. And everyone in that place is practically hasn't survived. And so instead of going home, they just course correct and go to another bar. And in her adult life, you know, looking back, she says, I can't believe I was out in the midst of all this. Like, why didn't I just go home? But that's not what they did. They just, they tried to live their lives as much as they could in the midst of something that would, I think we presume, would derail normal life. Uh, which is, to me, you know, in our current situation, relatively telling, right? You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, how do you try to find these, you know, ribbons of, of normal life? Because every day is a new day and time continues on, even though you feel like it should be on pause. Um, something else that I thought was interesting was the fact that from the British perspective, they expected France to save the day. They really thought the French were going to be able to hold it together. Uh, do you do you have any any thoughts about that, Tyler? I do. I certainly do. I, I thought the the geopolitical detail or the insight into what the the dynamic was like between the the nations that were involved, specifically UK, France, UK, the US, was fascinating. And the France just did not live up to specifically Churchill's expectations. They let him down. And then on the U.S. side, something that I found surprising was just how long it took for the U.S. to, to stand up and support their brothers and sisters in the U.K. And the dynamic between Churchill and Roosevelt and Churchill's courting of him, trying to make sure that, that he was transparent about what was going on but not come off as too desperate and how Avril Harriman ends up playing a big role in, uh, in understanding what exactly is going on on the ground. And as a proud American, I was quite disappointed at, at, at moments, thinking, why, why was Roosevelt back in the U.S. playing politics when clearly things were getting really bad and the U.K. would not be able to win the war without the U.S.'s support? That's a, that's very true. And I, I think, you know, we forget that, of course, America had come out of World War I, had lost many of their young people, you know, either they were dead or they were, you know, recovering from shell shock and, and all these other issues. And then we had the Great Depression and Roosevelt's in, you know, trying to win an election. And so the American public is not interested in another war. Like, I'm sorry that stuff's going on in England, but that's not our problem. We are not involved. And this is one moment where Churchill's genius, the genius of his leadership shines through. He was able to play the long game and be patient and do what he needed to do in order to convince Roosevelt and other U.S. leaders to back him. It's true. Well, and to your point about his leadership and the ability to play the long game, he also was able to not make the British public, which is another key character in this book, lose heart, right? I mean, he doesn't tell them, he tells them it's bad, but not that it's hopeless. And the fact that we, you know, they needed us, they needed the US, um, and that France didn't do what he thought, 
it wasn't that he showed all of his cards to the British public and were like, well, you know, we're depending on these Americans and they're not coming through, so I don't really know what we're going to do here. He somehow was able to save face until we joined, which is pretty remarkable. He struck a great balance. He was he he never sugarcoated the situation, but he never made it in, in a painted in a light where the public would lose despair. And I think there are it was partly the way in which he he spoke. And there's that great quote that Winston Churchill mobilized the English language and put it into battle. And there are other components that come to light that this is a man who was had incredibly low levels of vanity. His personal secretary, Colville, speaks of how his complete absence of personal vanity. And I think that made him uh, lovable and, and vulnerable to, to the public. I, I would very much agree with that. You know, you have all of these accounts of after a bombing, him going out to the places that were impacted and walking amongst the community and weeping with people and hugging people and and uh, and just being able to actually emote with the everyday person um, in a way that they were able to respect and trust him, and also felt like he was the per- their neighbor. And and that's that's a gift that a lot of politicians um, maybe don't don't have. And he 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 has a great quote that very much is on this uh, theme, which is quote: "It would be foolish to disguise the gravity of the hour." it would be still more foolish to lose heart and courage. And that was just a, a consistent theme throughout his speeches. And I think, you know, Churchill doesn't live in a vacuum, right? He has the people around him, um, his circle that he surrounded himself with, his family, uh, who also were able to, to speak truth to him and encourage him. Um, what do you think about Clementine, his wife? What a important figure in his life and in all of world war ii for that matter she is very much in the in in the in the back if you will but is is incredibly important churchill it looks to her as a trusted advisor and i thought it was great detail that they they would correspond through written letter and it was a way to get across to churchill and how at one point she explains to him that he is acting in a way that his inner circle is getting annoyed with him. He's, he's, he's being slightly, what's the right word, uh, ornery. And she, she, through written letter, explained to him, say, you got you to gotta pull yourself together here. The stress is getting to you. And you're going to win no one over or this war if you uh, are not fun to work with. And she reminds him of this French adage that, that he would say quite often. And it was that a uh, lead through calm. And my guess is that his saying, keep calm and carry on, has origins in that adage that she reminded him of. So Which is very important. Yeah, that, that to me um, is pretty incredible that, you know, this phrase that now we see emblazoned on shirts and mugs and people's cars um, came from the correspondence of, you know, of, a, of a, a married couple that deeply respected and loved each other. Um, and the fact that their correspondence was written so that we get to benefit from it, because had they just had conversations, we would have no idea 
how they felt or you know what their thoughts were about things. So thank you, Churchills, for writing letters. Um, other characters that we like in this book, I think we cannot have this podcast without talking about Beaver Brook. No, that would that would be injustice if we overlooked Lord Beaver Brook. He's an incredible figure. What when you hear Lord Beaver Brook, what comes to mind? So for Beaverbrook, he is he's a man that uh, is very much about business, but also really loves to be in the middle of all that's going on. He likes to have his finger on the pulse, and he likes to be the go-to person who can fix problems and who can spread the you know the news that is like the newest thing that's going on. Um, I, I really love the fact that he loves to just shoot to the punch. He doesn't like red tape, doesn't like bureaucracy which is unfortunate for someone who's now been, you know, um, corralled into working for the government, right? Uh, so I think Beaverbrook is, in many ways, kind of even a foil to, to Churchill because they are, they're different in so many ways and they call out things to each other because they also have these correspondences where, you know, Beaverbrook tries to quit his job at the post of being able to, uh, you know, recruit um, the public to raise money for the Spitfires and, you know, the Spitfires, which end up giving, you know, the Luftwaffe a run for their money, which is incredible because that would not have been expected. And, you know, who would have thought that in the 19, you know, 40s, we could crowdsource to be able to finance things needed for a war, right? But Beaverbrook somehow is able, able to do that. And that's Beaverbrook's business person mindset that ends up making him so good at his job. And it's also what makes him want to quit over and over again because he's thrust into two environments that are antithetical to a business person's natural proclivities, which is he's thrust into military and government mm -hmm. and which is which those two environments are notorious for having bureaucracy. This is an individual who hates meetings, hates inefficiencies. And in many ways, it was a brilliant move by Churchill to appoint that mindset into that role because Churchill knew that he didn't have years to pull together an Air Force. He needed to do it now. And so through the crowdfunding of the Spitfire, the Spitfire Fund, Beaverbrook makes the, the Air Force strong enough where they compete with the Luftwaffe. Which is a excellent segue to the Germans because the Nazis also are characters in this book. So we get to um, have insight into kind of the thought processes of the high-ranking officials. We get some really great character sketches of some of the, the well-known Nazis, Goring, Goebbels, Hitler, of course, um, Hess. And uh, I don't know about you, Tyler, but I think something that struck me was the way in which Larson is able to give a humanity to the Nazis in a way that does not take away from the evil that they implemented, but actually enhances the evil that they implemented. Yeah, it's that's, that's perfectly put. It's it it gets across the fact that monsters are still human, if you will, and but that they're that they act in a way that on the surface seeks normal 
and like, oh, they're celebrating Christmas. They're doing, they're, they're, they're writing their journal and they're critiquing how other leaders are acting. But it, which I think is part of how they got away with the evil that they did because on the surface it was, oh, they, they look normal or they're just really talented leader. And in some ways it helped hide the, the monstrosity that they truly are. Uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, often we think of evil being this thing that kind of hits you over the head, um, when often it is in the very kind of stealthy, sneaky, insidious ways that it builds and builds and builds, and then you realize what kind of construction was happening the whole time. And, you know, you even see that with, with Germans in the war and, like, what lower-ranking people knew versus what the officials were saying and how the officials felt compelled to spin propaganda for their own public. Mm. Um, so their own public wasn't necessarily always privy, or at least they were able to turn a blind eye and go, well, surely that's not what's going on because that's not what they're telling us, right? Um, which is a very, um, I think, a very nuanced display of what was happening on both sides and I think important um, to keep in mind about yeah. the war. And, and that's perfectly put, and I think that Larson's use of primary sources like diaries gives you incredible insight into the tactics. So you see misinformation being used by Goebbels. Goebbels, after Dunkirk, directs the, the propaganda machine in Germany to put out a news release that they found 100,000 British uniforms and that that would sow this fear in the British public of, oh no, they might be able to invade and they'll look like us. And that in addition, you also get insight in, into how, what was actually happening and how weak they were, mm -hmm. how on the outside, the Germans looked so strong. In actuality, they, they had cracks and there, were, there, was, there, there was internal dissent and you get to, to understand just exactly uh, how in many ways the, the, the kind of foundation was crumbling. It absolutely was. And even the idea that, you know, if Hitler had had his way, they would have never, and they wouldn't have bombed England. They didn't want to be in war with England. They wanted England just to surrender like the French because they were, you know, they wanted to attack Russia. Like that was his initial plan, right? And then how do you fight a two front war? I mean, we see how that ended. Um, so, you know, I think it's so um, fascinating that when, you know, you sat in a class in your U.S. history course, you know, as a teenager, and kind of glazed over the war. You missed all the drama that is really, I mean, as good as something you could watch on Netflix. Um, because people are just complicated, and their agendas and their motivations are complex. And that is what history is. And we're often so many times forgetting that, you know, we read something that happened way back at this point, forgetting that those people were just like us, at that time, and that we are in this moment also living history. And to back to the U.S. history comment, I think we read history as if it was a foregone conclusion. Of course, the Allies were going to win. We were the good guys. And it when you when you get insight like 
Larson provides, you realize just how fragile the moment actually was mm -hmm. and therefore how critical leadership is. Very and true. if it wasn't for Churchill's persistence, there, there's a chance that the UK would have thrown in the towel, would have surrendered. And there are insights, especially early on in that year, where you realize that. That's actually a very good point because, you know, we have, you know, the prince who, we have the king who abdicated because of love, right? Who was a German sympathizer. Had he not abdicated, we would have been in a very different situation. Then we have Churchill, who is, you know, the lone voice in the wilderness, who is adamant about the evil of Hitler and the danger that Germany is posing to the entire world when everyone else is like, can we just not fight and can we just be done? I mean, are they really that bad? And even the Nazis say, if we could just get this Churchill, this pesky Churchill out of the way, England would fold. And, uh, and so I think that point is incredibly valid that it was very fragile, that the world we know um, could have been another world altogether if just something, if one of those things had been different. Yeah, and if Churchill didn't have the backbone that he had mm -hmm. and the conviction in, in knowing that Hitler was a manifestation of evil and a horrible force on humanity, yeah, we, we easily could have turned out in a disastrous way. No, that's very true. Hitler met his match in Churchill. Yes, and he, he refers to him as that bad man. And the one trait that he shares in common with Hitler is disdain for whistling. But outside of that, uh, he did not seem to see many uh, elements of uh, similarities. Yep, yep. No, you know, uh, I guess whistling is something that maybe your arch enemy and you could agree on. That's probably about it. <laughs> um, well, do we have, are there any other things we... We want to discuss, or I know you, you have found all sorts of really awesome quotations. I don't know if there's something you'd like to Yeah, well, end there, with. There, there are so many, so many rich characters in the book, from Colville, his private secretary, to people within his inner circle, the prof. Lindemann is his, his, his surname. And the, the family members. And I think one... One, one place that I think is worth pointing out before we wrap up is Checkers, which is the weekend escape yes. for the prime minister. And I think that that is a, an important place because that's where, that's where Churchill got most, a lot of his ideas, where he was able to, to relax and, 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 and vibe and, and socialize. And to the, our point earlier about continuing to go through the normalcy, each weekend he would go there and he would do his baths. And <laughs> so he, true. He, 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 he would drink his, his uh, drinks. He would dictate from his baths to yes. his secretary. <laughs> Very true. So are there any moments within Checkers that you, you recall that? I, there was one night, and I don't remember what was going on, but I know Churchill was definitely like the night owl. And so, you know, they would have these, these meals, and they'd have these long drawn out dinners, and then people would begin to retire, but Churchill would be the last person to go to bed, and he usually recruit like two or three more people, and they'd sing songs, 
you know, usually like soaked in brandy and cigars by this point. And occasionally he'd burst into tears, which I've just found comical because I could just imagine what he must look like being, you know, you know, holding court at like 2 a.m. at, you know, in the in a checkers parlor. Which I imagine at some point on, on one of those Sundays, he, he said the following, which he, he said to his wife, always remember, Clementine, that I have taken more out of alcohol than alcohol has taken out of me. <laughs> and I think those are apt words. <laughs> um, well, we're going to take a little break and then we'll close. So I hope you all enjoyed that conversation. Thank you to Tyler again for sharing some airtime with me. I hope you all have a great week. Don't forget to vote.